Welcome back to another Yak Podcast. This week we're covering the reliability of the New Testament, can we trust the Bible, and what the author said. Hope you guys enjoy it. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time we get to come together. Uh, thank you for uh, us growing together as a group. Uh, Lord, I ask that you bless this next um, time uh, that we have. Uh, may students learn these facts and absorb it and become more assured of their faith and the scriptures they read. Your son's name. Amen. So where does the evidence lead concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible? That's the question posed to us tonight. Um, the other way to phrase the question is this. Can we trust what the Bible says it is? Who wrote the Bible and where it came from? That's the basic underlying assumptions of this question. Before we dive into such a broad topic, I would like to put a lens on the issue as we approach it. I framed the question a specific way. And tonight we will answer three key questions that I hope strengthen your resolve, relieve your doubts, and answer your questions. So where are we heading? One, how do I deal with discrepancies within Scripture? How do you deal with that? Two, how do I know the New Testament is historically reliable? That's where we're going to spend the most biggest chunk of our time. And three, can I trust the authors? And the third one is one of the um, apologetics that um, knocked down some walls to lead me to faith. So how do I deal with discrepancies. We can spend the whole evening on this topic, but I'm going to give you three things to prepare you for challenges to Scripture that you will come across. We have to understand our view of Scripture first. So if you believe it's riddled with flaws and you can cut it, paste it like Thomas Jefferson, then you will have a very different view than the Reformers in the position of our church. So what is our church's position on Scripture? I, gosh, why'd you do that? Sorry, I moved the whole talk over from keynote to PowerPoint, and of course, this is one of the flaws. So, This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the part you can't read, I'll read to you. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem to the Holy Scriptures. Should we, should we should hold the Scriptures in high regard. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by with the word in our hearts. If we give, if we begin with the assumption that the Bible is accurate, infallible, reliable, then we, then when we are approached by people with what seems to be falsehoods within Scripture, we need to know how to respond. So, if this is our fundamental basis, how do we respond to people who are outside of it? So, if non AJ, non AJ, comes up to you. Yes. And asks a hard question, this is how you respond. Non-AJ is my Wario. For those of you who understand the Wario reference, you're welcome. For those of you who didn't, that probably means you've been on a date lately. So, number one. Huh? 
Never mind. I thought he was a poker. Rule one, context. First question we need to ask our friend is, what is the correct context of the scripture? So if they come up with a Bible difficulty, look at context. Context can get you into a lot of trouble. Let's see how they get you. So this is Walt's radiator muffler brakes. We are the best place in town to take a leak. Context. You just see that? It might look more like a Bucky's. Free kids. You can pick them up right inside. Free kids. The context being this is an IHOP window and free kids meals on certain days. Yes. Yeah, I assume. Uh, unless you know the right context. Bad farts. That guy has a bad fart. If you understand the context, you know that bad fart is that way. Or butt fart. Okay? Which I'm assuming is what it is in Dutch or whatever that is. Okay? Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. Church of the Cross, United Methodist Church. Hey, context. What does that mean? This is a place where we take people get euthanized. Depends on the style of sermons, right? I guess. Slow children at play. This sign is all over the city. The number of slow kids we have in this town is abundant. Abundant. Be very careful with slow children. They're not very good at playing, hence why they run like a Yeti. <laughs> I thought it was a Sam Squatch. They all run like Sam Slow children at play. So, here's what we laid. Matthew 7, 1. You get this thrown in your face a lot. Judge not that you not be judged. How is this typically taken out of context? You're in a conversation with non-AJ. And you use the dreaded W word. Wrong. That is wrong. Who are you to judge? The Bible says, judge not that you not be judged. How dare you say someone's wrong? Now let's completely ignore for the time being that when someone says, who are you to call something wrong? It's technically a loaded question. And they are in essence saying that you are wrong for doing so, which makes their claim self-defeating. So let's ignore that. But we, what do we do? We look at the context of the verse. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce... You will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of the brother's eye. What is the verse actually saying? It is not telling us not to judge. It's telling us that if we do judge, we have to make sure we first aren't living with the same sin ourselves. That whatever we judge someone else on, we will be judged for the same sin. We should always examine ourselves before we examine others. It's not telling us not to examine others. People use this out of context all the time, especially unbelievers. So, rule one on how to handle objections. Context. Rule two falls within the same vein of rule one. We should ask what the author meant by what he was saying. Rule two is delivery. Okay? Not only is it important to know what the author is saying context, but it's also what the, how the author is saying it. This is extremely important. So I got my college degree in theater. And the difference between a good actor and a bad actor is, fa- is not found in the line that they are saying on stage. It is found 
on how they are delivering the line in the midst of the context. Does that make sense to all the actors in the room? That's clear. It's not how you say the line. It's how you say it in the midst of the context. It's why episodes one, two, and three of Star Wars were so hard to watch. They didn't understand that. Okay? This is just as important in the written word, knowing how someone says something. So let's pose a question. Should we take the Bible literally at all times? No? No? Okay. So you've all been around me for a while. It was a very different answer when we did this three years ago. Mm -hmm. Because when... um, uh, Who reads sports magazines or articles online in here? Not necessarily sports magazines or... Who has read anything on the internet? Okay, good. We're all in the same boat. We can move forward. Do you read those things literally? No. Because when it says the Rangers devoured the Tigers, you don't immediately label Elvis Andrews a cannibal. Okay? It's called a euphemism. So when the Bible says in Psalm 47, 8, that God sits on a throne, we don't literally believe that God has a physical body and is up on a throne made from the scales of a mermaid stroking his beard, watching the world. I know. You assumed he had a beard. Exactly. First, this would cause problems with the continuity of the Bible when John 4 says that God is a spirit. Second, if you read the context of Psalm 47, you see David proclaiming the majesty of God, and in the process, he uses euphemisms to best explain his adorations. So how the author of the Bible is delivering the message is just as important as the context. These two rules, context and delivery, help answer the majority of non-AJ's Bible questions. But let's say you are not familiar with the context or delivery. Let's say you didn't even know the book of 2 Chronicles existed. What then? Rule three, do some research. You and I, at some point or another, will probably come across a discrepancy. We are not schooled on how to respond. And that's okay. There is a way to respond tactfully. And this is it. Admitting you don't know. This is what you say. I don't know the answer to that specific question. But the Bible's been around for a long time, so I'm sure someone's responded to it. Would you like me to do some research for you? Answering it that way does two things. It says, I don't know. You are deflating a situation, especially if someone's getting heated. Two, so you're being humble. Two, you're just giving the facts. The Bible's been around for a long time. I bet someone's addressed that question. There's not new objections we're finding. There's not. There's actually less. And then the last one. Would you like me to do some research for you? What is that saying? Well, you're the one with the question. You should probably do some research. But if you don't have time to, I'm willing to do it for you. You can now understand and be schooled on how to respond to it. But you're also putting the onus in their court. Professors and lawyers have already taken up the mantle of defending specific passages within Scripture when it comes to discrepancies. So I'm not going to go into that tonight. If you want more information on discrepancies versus contradictions, I would suggest these two resources. One is When Critics Ask by Geisler and Howe, and the other one is by the same two, the big book, Bible Difficulties. It's like that big. But they do a really good job of just every objection that has ever, like, been published on a scholarly journal, they address it on. The reason it's big is not necessarily because there's a lot, but because they address Every single, even the dumb ones, like judging and stuff. So, okay. 
So let's review how we respond to discrepancies. Context, delivery, research. And I'm confident that if you use this approach, you can answer the questions levied against the Bible. And while these three approaches help answer the next question, we have to check to make sure that some 6th century monk didn't go back and change everything so that it lined up. And we will find that while this is a fun objection brought up on the internet and Dan Brown novels, it should stay there out of reality. So, how do I know the New Testament is reliable? We're moving to our second thing tonight. How do I know? Is it going to move? Oh, it just gets out of the way. I appreciate that. Let's put scripture aside for a moment. Remember, I'm not arguing from the Bible. The question posed tonight is, where does the evidence lead concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible? So let's take a look at the non-biblical evidence that points to the fact that the same Bible we have today is the same Bible as the original. Let's assume that the Bible did not exist. All 27 New Testament books had vanished during the mass burning of the manuscripts under Emperor Diocletian in AD 303. Let's assume that actually took place. Would we know anything about Jesus? The answer is yes, and a lot of key facts about him. Thanks to the histories of Josephus, Celsus, Pliny the Younger, Centenius, Thallius, Pelagian, Marabar Serapion, Lucian, Heradian, Tacitus, and the Jewish Talmud, the last three being anti-Christian resources, we know a lot. These are all written within 150 years of Jesus' life, which for an ancient biography is actually fantastic timing. We'll get to more of that, why that's such good timing later. In total, there are 10 non-Christian sources supporting the life of Jesus. 10 non-Christian sources supporting the life of Jesus. By comparison, there are only nine non-Christian sources that mention Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus. The Bible did not exist. The non-Christian sources would help us piece together the facts about the life of Jesus. These are from the non-Christian sources. One, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Two, He lived a virtuous life. Three, he was a wonder worker. Four, he had a brother named James. Five, he was acclaimed to be the Messiah. Six, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Seven, he was crucified on the eve of Passover, Jewish Passover. That's really key when we've dated um, Christ's crucifixion to be AD 33. We're using some of the non-Christian resources, so the reason I believe it's AD 33 is because that Friday falls on the eve of the Jewish Passover that year. Okay? Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for that belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. We knew all those things from non-Christian resources. And the implications of the non-Christian resources are rich. The idea that Jesus never existed, espoused by the number of historians as there are fingers on your hand, and those wannabe historians who spend too much time online, is unreasonable. On face value, the non-Christian authors affirm the New Testament. While they do not believe in the resurrection, they report that the disciples certainly did. 
and that Christianity grew at an alarming rate within the Roman Empire in the face of constant persecution, including the leaders of the movement getting killed. We're going to touch on this briefly. It is number of historians, and by historians, that means you have published on a scholarly level on the subject. Number from what I, I believe right now we're sitting at one who believes that Jesus Christ did not exist. Okay? Doesn't matter how you, how you, it's just one. No matter how you look at it. Unlike two, which if you look at it that way, it's just one. Okay? So it's just one. You do have people like the internet infidel and other people who spend way too much time online and in fairy tales who believe that Jesus Christ didn't exist. It is the consensus. Um, if you do not believe Jesus Christ ever existed, you typically are throwing out all of history. You don't, you don't believe you can trust anything prior to the printing press. So people who hold to that hold to a radical view of history. Okay, okay AJ, that's all dandy. But we do not have any of the original copies of the New Testament books. So this is the good question. Does this prevent us from knowing what the New Testament actually said? Okay. Not at all. The fact is, so I think it says no. No. Not at all. The fact is we have no original manuscripts from the ancient world. We rely in all aspects of history from handwritten copies. We compare those copies to see where the copyist might have made a mistake and can deduce what the original said. The more copies, the better. Okay? So the more copies we have, the more we can compare, make sure that what it said is right. Why does this section have this first, but the rest of them do not? So how does the New Testament fare in regard to other works in the ancient world? Let's take the best of the pack. I'm not throwing the worst at you. Best of the pack, okay? So we got Pliny, the Younger's History. Seven. Oh, number of copies. Wow. Oh, it's there. Zero seven. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so Pliny, seven. Caesar, that's ten. I know. I know. Sorry. I'm so mad that this is... I went over it. And it didn't. Tacitus, 20. Plato, 7. Herodotus, 8. Demosthenes, 200. Homer, 643. New Testament. Did it remove? Oh, I went back. New Testament. Perfect. Uh, New Testament, the line right underneath Homer, we're at between 5,600 Greek manuscripts. If we include the Latin Vulgate, if we include the other languages that it's written in, Coptic and the like, um, we have, we're pushing 1,500, 1,600 manuscripts. Okay. So there's another 9,000 in Syriac, Coptic, Latin, and Arabic. Okay, that's a lot of manuscripts. Okay? And what about the distance in time? What about the distance in time between the original and the earliest known copy? The closer the actual, the original, the less time for tampering, right? Okay? I love this. Pliny, 750 years. Caesar, 1,000. Tacitus, a thousand. Plato, 
1,200. Herodotus, 1,400. Demosthenes, 1,400. Homer does great, 500. New Testament, 25 to 50 years. And that's the earliest fragment. That's called the John Rylands fragment, and it gives us a portion of the Gospel of John, literally a small portion. So in my mind, while that's a nice number, it doesn't really, it kind of does give a misleading picture. You're talking about a fragment compared to the earliest known. So the earliest we have is less than 100, okay, for a whole book. Um, less than 200 years out, we have almost all of them, okay? Which still, compared to everything else on the timeline, we're looking pretty. Um, while this is impressive I don't think it really matters when we get to how the New Testament was reconstructed portion of the talk in a second I'll help you see that I think if we only had a few hundred from the 15th century from multiple locations we would be fine and that's why historians trust all these other writings even if they took place 14 to 1500 years or the earliest copies they have are 14 or 1500 years after it. And you're going to see why. The fact is, the New Testament wipes the floor with every other work of antiquity. Okay? But AJ, there's my non AJ, what about the roughly 300,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts? One, we know from Daniel Wallace's talk last year that the current number is more like 400,000. It might be as many as 600,000. Um, the fact is we have so many manuscripts, and when you're comparing each one, they just continue to go up, and we'll see why in a second. Um, before we answer the very question, so, well, this is a publicized statistic, and you'll see this a lot in public school Bible classes. It's very misleading. They're not errors, but they're called variants. Before we answer the variant question, we have to ask ourselves, how is the New Testament reconstructed? Hey, the first question, how does it go back? I want to know. Just the ways. Aha! Boom. Oh, the scroll wheel? The scroll thing. This is amazing. I love technology. Sorry. The first question we have to ask is whether the same New Testament today is the same as the original authors produce. So let me paint the picture with a story. I used to be a camp counselor. I've told some of you this story before. I use it all the time because it's a word picture that hopefully you can use when you discuss this with a friend. I used to work with four and six-year-olds for about eight hours a day during the summer. We used to play the telephone game. You know the game where the person one whispers into the ear of person two a phrase, and then they pass the phrase down the line until person 20 says what he hears. It's a blast, especially when you have 20 four- to six-year-olds. One kid, I'll call him Clark to protect his identity. If he was kid 20 and got to tell everyone what the phrase ended up being, he would scream out phrases with fruits and vegetables because he thought it was funny. It didn't matter what kid 19 whispered in his ear. He had already determined by the time the phrase got to kid number three what he was going to scream out. And he thought it was funny. It probably didn't help that I was laughing every time he yelled out, Susie has a stinky banana! He was not a good last person. Well, what does this have to do with the Bible? The claim will be leveled against the Bible that has been passed along much like the telephone game and the Bible we have today is a stinky banana. Luckily for us, the Bible was not composed using the telephone game. 
This challenge leveled against the New Testament based on two misconceptions about transmission of ancient documents. The first assumption is that the transmission is more or less linear. And when I say linear, I mean there's person A, and he gives person B the chance to copy it, and then person C copies person B's, and then person D copies person C. It's linear. Do you see what I mean there? So the, the translation generation goes in a linear format. Uh, in a linear transmission, people are left with one message and many generations between it and the original. Second, the telephone game example depends on oral transmission, which is more easily distorted and misconstructed than something written. I mean, let's be real. In the telephone game, you whisper in someone's ear and you're not allowed to hear it again. If we had all day for me to be like, Susie Stinky Banana, Susie Stinky Banana, Susie Stinky Banana, it would literally take him being a jerk and completely rechanging it. Like, in a written format, you're looking at it and you write it. And then what do you do typically when you're copying something? You look at it again. Especially if you think it's important, like the words from God. Okay? Neither assumption applies to the written text of the New Testament, or any ancient manuscript for that matter. First, the transmission is not linear, but geometric. Think like a family tree. Okay? Example, one letter birthed five copies, which became 25, which became 200, and so on. Secondly, the transmission in question is done in writing, and written manuscripts can be tested in a way that oral communication cannot. So again, you have Irenaeus, who is a um, disciple of one of the apostles. I'm blanking on which one. And he's learned from that apostle the whole entire time, and he has his own copy of the book of John. And Irenaeus gives his students his text so they can make their own copies and then go to their churches to teach from it. Okay? So now you have one text, now you have five texts to make sure that it's linear. Okay? And then it moves on and on and on. Um, it's called a, literally a family tree of manuscripts. We can track the family trees of manuscripts, which is so cool. Because if an error persists in one and it ends up doubling up along a family tree line, we're like, oh, we know that's a clear error because it's a spelling error. And they're all in this set of manuscripts from the same area, and they date at different times. So we can literally tell family trees based on the variants, which is really cool. Okay? So take this example. Let's say that Peyton okay, has come out with the coolest youth group game on the planet. She calls the game... Susie's Stinky Bananas. She writes it down. Peyton does not like computers. So at a meeting, she lets five others copy by hand the instructions to the game of Susie's Stinking Bananas. We are so moved by such an awe-inspiring game involving rotten bananas and a tennis racket. Got you thinking now, don't I? That when we meet with our friends in each of our communities, we let them copy the game down by hand too. But something happens. Person two, Preston, gets so overwhelmed that he eats Peyton's original copy of Susie's Stinky Bananas. Peyton is distraught and contacts the original five friends hoping 
that they had their copies still. And in a sad turn of irony, Preston has eaten all their copies too. Oh my gosh, I love it. So Peyton asked all her friends to contact their friends who had written copies of Susie's Thinking Bananas and was able to gather 34 different handwritten copies. Now, do you think from those 34 copies, we should be able to figure out what was originally written? To ask the question as it relates to our conundrum, do you think someone with no knowledge of Susie's Stinky Bananas could figure out what the original said? Sure. Even with the fact that two copies say peel then crush instead of crush then peel, and several misspellings, and one person adding LOL at the end of the game, they could still figure it out. The way you reconstruct the original New Testament is that easy. Compare many copies and quotations and allow an extremely accurate reconstruction, even with errors in the copies. So let's use Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. On the slide are the hypothetical copies. Okay? One, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Two, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Three, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Four, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Could number four be thinks? Yes. But that doesn't make much sense, so we have to explore the English language and come up with something that makes sense. Or look at other manuscripts. It could also be thins. Which would exclude fat people from heaven. Which, if that were the case, Jenny Craig and Tony Horton should be sainted. Ladies and gentlemen, do we have a Sherlock Holmes-style mystery on our hands as to what the verse actually said? No. And here is the joy and the curse of people who copied the New Testament. Some of them wanted their own letter from Paul. So when the letter or copy of, was laid out at the church, they would get their lambskin and writing utensil and copy the letter. Some of these individuals saw the errors and tried to correct them, sometimes mistakenly. Others wanted exact copies and were meticulous in their copying. Unfortunately, sometimes they perpetuated a mistake within their own copy. But this leads to my next point. If you have a copy of the letter to the Philippians and you have ten meticulous copyists and they all copy number four exactly as it is, that one spelling error would be copied ten times. And when we break down the 300,000 or 400,000 or however many number variants, that would be 11 misspellings would be counted 11 times, not once. Do we still know what it says? The fact is, with the crazy amount of variants that we have, using common sense Greek and comparing the manuscripts, we now we know our New Testament to be 98.33% accurate. Let me break that down more. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words. And none affects any significant doctrine. Not one. No other book has been so well authenticated. The great New Testament scholar and Princeton professor Bruce Mester 
estimated that the Mahatma Bara of Hinduism is copied with only 90% accuracy. Homer's Iliad with 95%. By comparison, he estimated the New Testament is about 99.5% accurate. Again, the 0.5% in question does not affect a single doctrine of the Christian faith. Ancient manuscript authority Frederick Kenyon summed up well the status of the New Testament when he wrote this. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. Especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. And what about those variants? Do we have a conspiracy on our hands? Do we hide these from you? Is this a big church cover-up to get you to get that 10% tithe and keep women silent in a masculine culture? No. In each modern translation, you will find footnotes. And in those footnotes lies the variance. So if we are not sure of a word or a verse, it is made clear to the reader. If you have a Bible around you, turn to Mark 16, 9 through 20. I haven't even checked these Bibles yet, so I'm not even sure if they have it. But I'm sure they have it. Yeah. What does the little bracket say of a Mark 16, 9 through 20? What? What? It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. We tell you. We we tell you. That's going to be great when I listen to this later and edit it. Does that mean we can't possibly be bitten by I know, but it tells you in every modern translation, it's clear. And that whole section is part of those uh, 400 words we were talking about that we don't know. The stuff that we're iffy about, there's footnotes. You'll see it throughout any Bible. Some manuscripts say this word instead of this word. We're not hiding it from you. Okay, I don't have a secret compartment back in my office with like, you know, the book of second hesitations. That doesn't exist. Greg Kogel puts it this way. This issue is no longer contested by most non-Christian scholars, and for good reason. Simply put, if we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd have to reject every ancient work of antiquity and declare null and void every piece of historical information from written sources prior to the beginning of the second millennium A.D. We'd have to just throw it all away. Okay? hope that covers it most of it for you. So we have accurate copy, AJ. What if it's a lie? Last point. Can I trust the New Testament authors? Okay? Let us pretend that you guys are a jury. And the New Testament... 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 The New Testament authors are speaking to you. If they are lying, they are committing perjury. Okay, jury? That's what lying means. Okay, Ben, if you ever go to prison, don't commit perjury. You'll spend more time there. Okay? 
L.A. cold case detective Jim Wallace, who is a part-time Christian apologist, states that every crime that is ever committed typically falls into three categories for motive. So the vast majority. Financial motive, lust motive, and a power motive. A power motive includes revenge. So let me ask you, is there any motive for them to lie? Okay? So, financial. Let's look at financial. Do they have, do the New Testament authors and the early church leaders win financially? No. On the contrary, it tells us in Acts that the disciples in the church sold what they had and gave it to those in need. If you don't believe the Bible, then I challenge you to produce one shred of evidence that supports your position that disciples made out like bandits in a town with no sheriff. The fact is there's no proof. And unfortunately, you live in a culture where people will make this claim. Well, they probably just got rich. So you believe they got rich? Yes. You believe something without evidence, which is going to lead to a gospel presentation real quick. Well, what do you, you have no evidence to support theirs. There's no evidence. All the evidence we have, even if it is from Christian sources, says that they were Pope. They couldn't afford the O and the R. They were just Pope. Okay? Two, lust. What woman or group of women the disciples gained by following Jesus? The lepers? Again. Give me some evidence that the disciples headlined as pimps on high holy days. Okay? Three, power. They are thrown out of the synagogues, which if you understand Jewish culture is the lifeblood of society. Getting jobs, finding a spouse, receiving help in times are rough, chance to play Susie's stinky bananas are gone with the prospect of claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Further, since Jerusalem is under Roman rule, the fact that Christians are denying Caesar as a god are leading them to their death. They're not gaining much power at all. Last, do they have anything to lose? Or loose? Everything. They had everything to lose. Yes, they had stuff to lose. Everything. Non-Christian sources tells us that the leaders of the church died. Think about it. The leader of their movement... Jesus had died on a cross. Why would they assume that their fate would be any different? I know you teenagers are convinced when you're in bad situations and you make poor decisions that your decision will be different than anybody else's who's gone through the exact same thing in life. Mine will turn out better. I will not be a statistic. Hate to break it to you. You will be. Okay? And the fact is, if their leader had dead, it was de- dying, they're not a bunch of teenagers thinking, we'll be different. We might not have any money or girls or power, but life will turn out great for us. So you have an option. You can believe that there was no motive to lie. And the disciples of Jesus gave up their safety, their benefits of their culture, and marched to their death for a man they knew didn't rise from the dead. Or their motivation was Jesus. What they believed was true. Drove them to give up their safety, the benefits of their culture, and marched them to their death. This guy showing up again. But AJ, people die for what they believe all the time. Correct. People die for what they believe all the time. However, people do not die for what they know to be false. And this would be the situations of the disciples. 
Do you see the difference between the terrorist and the disciple? A terrorist dies for something he believes to be true. You're not claiming that for a disciple. You're claiming they died for something they knew to be false. This, to me, is the most powerful apologetic, especially if you appreciate human psychology and sociology. The disciples who walked with Jesus, who had the most to lose simply by being associated with him, continued after he died to walk with him claiming he had risen from the dead, with nothing to gain and with death surely waiting them. Then they wrote accounts of what happened in their lives, only to paint themselves as stupid, cowardly peasants who walked with God, only to deny him three times, and when the going got tough, they ran away and hid. Where does the evidence of the Bible lead concerning the historical accuracy? I think it fares extremely well. There is no reason to believe the authors lied. There is no reason to believe we don't have the same New Testament that the original authors wrote. And if the New Testament is true, and Jesus said that no one letter would fall away from the law, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and quoted mightily from the other books of the Old Testament, then we can believe on the basis of the quality of the New Testament that the Old Testament, too, is reliable. Thanks for listening to the Yak Podcast. I hope you enjoy our uh, series on apologetics. If you want more information on Yak, you can visit us at cccfrisco.org. I hope you'll join us again soon.